You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please to call forward a Dr. Ryan Well, good evening. It's, it's good to be with you tonight. Um, I want to start by reading Psalm 72. Uh, you'll hear as I go through uh, this message that more precisely Psalm 71, precisely verse 2, uh, was perhaps the most significant uh, verse for Luther's breakthrough in understanding the righteousness of God. Um, and I didn't see until I uh, got into this work that uh, how Psalm 71 and 72 are related. Uh, but um, so I'll, I'll start by reading Psalm 72, and then I'll get into um, the message for tonight. I do feel obliged to mention very briefly uh, that this is not the typical way I preach. I'm a biblical scholar by profession, an ordained minister, and um, this is not the typical way I preach, nor is this the typical way that we train students at WSC to preach. Uh, But this is a special occasion, and I ran it by the officers first, that um, it's appropriate that, as has been prayed tonight, we review some of the glorious history of the Reformation. Um, So God did do a wonderful uh, work, and so you're here tonight, I'm going to try and explain that narrative to you as best I can. It's a complicated narrative, but I tried to make it as simple as possible. And um, I want you to understand this beautiful little snippet of how God used the Psalter in order to help Luther's mind be opened in such a way that he would understand God's righteousness anew. That's what we'll be uh, doing tonight as, as we turn, and I just thought that important qualification should be out there uh, before you. Uh, lest my own patron, Joel Kim, uh, my boss, and I left Mr. get some kind of message that they didn't preach the text at all. What, is, what kind of scholars are you having on there? So anyway, <laughs> um, I was telling a Renaissance scholar who was in our midst this morning, actually, that uh, um, we were talking about patrons in the Renaissance. And so uh, I'm joking about Joel Kim being my patron, uh, but there's a certain sense in which he is. Uh, he's my boss. Anyway, um, enough of that introduction. Let's turn to God's word and hear Psalm 72. We'll say by way of preface, and I'll, I'll mention this at the end, because I think it will help you understand Luther's understanding of this psalm more, is that um, in the academy today, that is in the university, and in many seminaries even, most people do not see Psalm 72 as applying to Christ. And the reason for that is because the things we just sang about and the things that we'll read stretch far beyond whatever happened in the monarchy in Israel. And so they have a hard time getting their minds wrapped around how in the world could this apply uh, to David and David's greater son, namely Christ. Uh, but I, I do think it's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and uh, without further ado, what we sing about here is about Christ and his glorious kingship and the work that he's doing uh, now, even as was prayed about just a moment ago. So give attention to God's word as we read it together. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. 
May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor, and him who hath no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May the gold of Sheba be given him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains may have waved. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may the people blossom in the cities, like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray as we look God's word and hear this message. <clears throat> Father, we plead with you once again um, on this late Sunday, uh, Lord's Day evening, that you would plant that posture without which no one can understand truth, especially as we examine your revealed word, but also how you have revealed yourself in history. And Father, um, may we um, have a, a posture uh, of humility and reverence uh, without which no one can understand truth. Help us to that end, we can pray. And uh, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So the first thing I'd like to cover tonight is the significance of the revival and learning for the Reformation. The significance of the revival and learning for the Reformation. And in order to do this, we have to go back a couple hundred years from the Reformation and talk about Renaissance humanism. Now, when I use the word humanism, I'm not using it in the way it's bandied about so much in conservative circles like secular humanism. I'm using it in a positive sense, mostly, uh, to capture the idea of the return of humanity's view of the dignity of mankind, especially with regards to the greatest creation when God created man in his own image, namely his intellect. And so remember that as we go through here, because I don't want it to be a trigger that you would shut down and not hear the other important things that happen. Said, one feels a bit overwhelmed when one looks at the Renaissance 
the sheer enormity of the issues, the changes and the factors that contributed to this time. The skeptic Voltaire called this one of the great four periods of Western history, four golden ages, together with Pericles in Athens, 5th, 4th century BC, the age of Augustus in Rome, the time of Christ and Paul, and Voltaire's own age in urban France. It was a time of compressed greatness. I could do, do no better than to quote the great Stanford humanist scholar, Louis Spitz, uh, now no longer teaching there, but uh, having a very high and esteemed career while he was there. So I quote him, it's worth listening, especially because the mountain metaphors. It, that is the Renaissance, was a time of outsized men, a culture studded with geniuses, Leonardo da Vinci, Alberti, Michelangelo. Italy emerged as a major intellectual and artistic force and assumed its proper place among the peoples of Europe. There was movement, there was excitement, there was joy and sorrow, vibrant life and sudden death. It was as though centuries of compressed action had been released in just a few decades. Even in the interest of scholarly blandness, it would be wrong to minimize the achievements of these Renaissance men or trivialize the universality of their life experience. Although our bourgeois mentality may prefer gradualism and feel uncomfortable in the presence of outstanding creativity and singular greatness, we must recognize the special dynamism of the Renaissance and its unparalleled accomplishments in many areas of social life and of higher culture. He goes on to say, of course, in any exploration of the historical landscape, one cannot merely leap from peak to peak, but must descend into the valleys, the mountains, foothills, and then scale new heights. But by any criteria upon which most men of cultural experience can agree, the Renaissance towers above most other regions in history's topography. This is great prose. <laughs> Such an exquisite moment in the millennia of man's past was the Italian Renaissance. So uh, Renaissance humanism was an action, a reaction to scholasticism in the Middle Ages, high scholasticism, where nominalism ruled the day. Um, Probably don't spend your waking moments during the week, I'm guessing, um, thinking about nominalism and intellectualism. Let me just give you a quick, dirty thumbnail sketch. Nominalism is, uh, in short, the philosophical idea that a thing derives its essence by the naming of it, where in contrast to that intellectualism, the other huge movement during the medieval period was that something in its essence is why we call it what we do. That'll make sense as we go along. So first of all, Petrarch, 1304 to 1374. He was the son of Florentine exiles. There are basically three great humanists who emerged in this period. And they um, contributed to the foundation of the revival and learning that paved the way for the Reformation. There are Dante. Petrarch and Boccaccio. We won't talk about Dante, even though I could, and that would be enjoyable, but we must move along, and we'll talk about Petrarch and Boccaccio first. As Louis Spitz characterizes Petrarch, he says, 
He was the founder of humanism, the most characteristic expression of Renaissance culture, and as such became the symbol of a new and modern element in culture. He was very orthodox in his theology, but not in his practices. Uh, thus, what many of the humanists will talk about this evening. We have little ears and eyes here, so I won't go into detail, but even though they were orthodox in their philosophy and theology often, uh, they were not moral men. Um, they were humans. Boccaccio came next. Giovanni Boccaccio, 1313-1375. And although we should probably not make a sharp distinction between the various disciplines of the Renaissance, namely literary, civic, metaphysical, humanism, Boccaccio is forever known as a literary humanist. He helped culture and people at that time recover and appreciate text, especially original texts. He was a friend of Petrarch. He was born of an illegitimate son, a Florentine merchant, and a French woman from Paris. He was educated in a current business. Dads usually wanted their sons to make livings in the world, so they sent him off to law school or business school. But he would have none of that. So he preferred the life of the court with the chivalry and aristocratic ways. And he's most famous for his work called The Decameron. This is a collection of over 100 short stories. The plot goes like this. Three young uh, uh, male youths and seven young ladies escape the plague and go off and tell each other stories, regale each other with stories. A hundred of them uh, recorded in the, the camera and out in a, in a villa. But more importantly, he promoted the study of the Greek language and culture. In 1397, there was a school started under the authority of the government that primarily promoted the Greek language. Boccaccio was primarily a kind of antiquarian. He had a great zeal to uncover ancient manuscripts. He recovered and found several important classical works in this adventurous desire to explore and recover a text of, of Sonius, another of Marshall, a minor work of Ovid, the great poet, and an important work of the Roman historian Tacitus. We're going to hear a theme tonight at Fontes. Back to the sources. So all these people are driving culture and the modern man of that time to return to original sources, not just the over-dependency upon what they were hearing from the Roman Catholic authorities, uh, as was even mentioned tonight. So that's called Ad Fontes. As I mentioned, he's most known for this work at Decameron, uh, but his ongoing influence of Ad Fontes and the revival of learning uh, probably the greatest contribution was a Greek mythology called the Genealogy of the Gods. Now, why do I mention this? If you're up on your Greek mythology, you'll remember the story of Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods and he was chained to a rock. That was his punishment. But Boccaccio introduces another Prometheus. This Prometheus is the Prometheus of the learned man. He says, learning, quote, makes of natural man a civil man. Remarkable for morals, knowledge, virtue, whereby it becomes obvious that nature produces man, and then learning forms him anew, close quote. So you can hear this impulse, uh, this revival in learning that eventually would indeed contribute to the Reformation. The next figure you may or may not heard of, uh, Marsilio Ficino, 1433 to 1499. 
had a patron named Pasimo Dan Medici. All these guys had patrons to support uh, their research and their studies. Uh, Medici, uh, his patron, chose his own physician's son to become a master of Greek and Platonic philosophy at this time. Uh, Cosimo de' Medici told the young man as he plucked him out for the special task that as his father had cared for his body, uh, now Marcillo uh, Piccino uh, was to become the curer of his soul. Somewhat frail physically, apparently, nevertheless, Spitz says he was a mental giant whose mind embraced and harmonized both systems of thought. So his patron, Medici, made available a summer home where he started a Platonic Academy. This wasn't a school in the formal sense, but rather it was colleagues and friends who gathered to study the sources and to study Greek language. And he was kind of a mentor overseeing these scholarly discussions. He wrote his masterpiece, Theologia Platonica, between 1469 and 1474. Notice we're getting closer to the Reformation. This is an elaborate statement of his Neoplatonic philosophy. He considered himself to be an apologist like Justin Martyr, namely reaching out to the intellectuals of his age in order to evangelize them. There's Pico della Mirandola, 1463 to 1494. He was the most brilliant philosopher of the Renaissance. Uh, he began to learn Hebrew. That's one reason why he was so brilliant, because he studied Hebrew. Um, he's especially significant because he influenced our next guy, Ruthlin. Uh, Ruthlin was a German and was Melanchthon's uncle. Melanchthon was Luther's right hand man, uh, was a friend and pupil of Ficino. So at 14, he began to study at Bologna, and then uh, after just two years, he left and he went on a student wander around Europe. Took him throughout the universities of Italy and France, and when he was in Florence, he engrossed himself in the study of scholastic theology. Usually these students would take a course in the usual studies of Latin and Greek and the classics. However, he was able to imbibe in all four of the classic languages, namely Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Arabic. One of his most famous chapters in the conclusions that he wrote was on the oration of the dignity of the human being in mankind. This became the most famous writing, one of the most famous writings of the Renaissance. At the age of 28, he published a commentary on the creation story in Genesis uh, entitled The uh, Heptopolis, um, I think Northern California Press Fair is going to be discussing this at their next uh, meeting. That's a joke. Um, he's also published a treatise uh, on God and creation in time of being and unity at this time in his life, which is a somber, somber reflection on the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer. Um, and in light of our study on the Reformation, it's very important. He's, he's stressing now the human beings and mankind's utter dependency upon God and the need for absolute grace. So Pico represents the positive side of the Renaissance, but the darker side as well. He gives a positive assessment of man created in the image of God, but his moral life as well was wanting. He was not a chaste man. Ruthland, 1455 to 1522, he's all important. His life is well known. It's a biography written by Ludwig Geiger, 
Uh, there's also other historical work done on him, but nothing outstrips this work. Uh, the last part of his life is extremely productive. He wrote an elementary Hebrew grammar, made Hebrew accessible to many other people. The grammar, very rudimentous, Hebraicus, published in 1506. In 1517, so the year that Luther founded the 95 Thesis on the written verb Gur, he wrote a major Kabbalistic work, which is Jewish mysticism. And then finally in 1518, he wrote a major work on Hebrew accents and cancellations. That means the singing of the Hebrew text. And in 1529, he wrote an annotated translation of seven penitential psalms. Look, for Ruklan, Hebrew was important for a right understanding of the Old Testament, but was also a key to access God's secrets. Ruklan's grammar was written with a pedagogical view in mind. This is especially evident in his comparison of Hebrew to Greek and Latin, which were the other learned languages of the day. Now, it may sound really tangentious if I stand up here and say, you know what the cause of the Reformation was? There is a certain truth to that claim. I'm going to qualify it, but I just want to make sure on this Sunday night you didn't fall asleep. And that you get this part of the narrative that you probably have not heard in detail before. But there's a truth to that. In studying the classical languages, especially Hebrew, Martin Luther's mind was opened up to the truth that we've already heard about this evening. So with the reception of this work, both grammatical and in, in dictionaries, um, it sold poorly at first, uh, but Luther knew of it, had a copy, as did the other early reformers, and he's best known for becoming the first Christian Hebraist for his efforts on the study of Hebrew. So, first part's over, thankfully. Uh, the principle that an educated ministry, what do we learn from this? The principle that an uneducated ministry, rather, will harm the church, either in the near future or down the road, um, but perhaps immediately, uh, is testified to in all of this. Look, the beauty of the Renaissance and a revival of learning is that all of this contributed to the Reformation, which at its root was a study the return of the original languages of Scripture. These men had this God-given thirst for obtaining facility in the original languages in which Scripture was written. And this opened up new vistas of understanding where their minds, as was prayed earlier, uh, were darkened or at least obscured. They were prevented now from making mistakes that they were making before and that were flourishing everywhere. No longer were teachers in the Reformation slavishly being just intellectual parrots of what went before them. In other words, if you don't learn the original languages, you're merely an intellectual parrot to repeat what's published before you. And I don't mean just like learning computer programs to make your way around the original languages so you can check and see what a word is or strong concordance or whatever the case might be. Otherwise, you'll just repeat what was before you, whether right or wrong. Over dependence on Latin and the Vulgate, the Jerome's translation of the Bible, um, was falling away now. 
that people had access to the languages and could study God's word in the original. And now, important doctrines are coming to light, including justification, uh, that I guess we're celebrating tonight in particular. A greater intimacy and authority with divinely inspired scripture was now made available through this kind of historical movement to revive learning, so that when ministers got up in the pulpit, they could say, after toiling and trotting through the trenches of, you know, hard work of exegesis in the original languages, Thus saith the Lord, I know it, I've seen it. And people in the pew began to pick up on that intimacy with which they were, you know, familiar, having engaged God in the text with a, a new directness, a new familiarity. Theological expertise in biblical language means less mistakes in the pulpit or in the privacy of hospital rooms or whatever the case may be. Education and the value of the intellect was restored to its proper place. Many, many schools opened. In, in fact, in Wittenberg, uh, a school opened up in Tehran, where they taught the classical languages. And now the educational demands expected of ministers uh, was raised to a high bar. Well, you have to go back, you can go back and do this in English. When you read Calvin or you read Luther and you say, why the Reformation? Well, in part because of the dissolute lives of the priests who were not attached to local congregations, and furthermore, didn't have formal educations. And so that contributed to their unchaste and immoral lives that you read about all over the place. And then, of course, the house celibacy. And so the reformers said, enough! <laughs> the people need good moral examples before them, and godly examples before them. And all this learning contributed to that, not solely in and of itself, but there it was. Now to get to the meat of it in the story, and justify the claim that to some degree Hebrew contributed to the Reformation. What is the significance of the Psalms for Luther's understanding of justification? Um, Alistair McGrath, who wrote a book, uh, this word's going to come up, sorry for the Latin, but I have to use it you know, so you can understand part of the cloudiness, but don't worry, I'll explain it. Istutitia uh, Dei, that means righteousness of God. Istutitia is righteousness, translated to Greek and Hebrew word. Um, and he has a book called uh, The Righteousness of God, The History of the Christian Doctrine and Justification, where he writes the following, and I quote, The most important book of the Old Testament, as judged by its influence upon the development of the Christian doctrine of justification, is the Psalter. The subject of major commentaries by Augustine, Peter Lombard, and Luther, to name but three. So, what was Luther's engagement with the Psalter, and how did it contribute anything, if it did, to his understanding of justification by faith and this huge breakthrough that he had? Well, the book of Psalms played a vital role throughout Luther's life and his teaching and his written work. As Sujin Panic, the great scholar of historical theology at Duke said, he turned to the book of Psalms time and time again in the crucial stages of his theological development and the emerging understanding of his reforming movement. I won't cite all the evidence, but I'll give you enough that you'll be convinced. In the very first years of his life, lecturing at Wittenberg, he began his lectures with a book on Psalms. 
These lectures were called Dictata Super Psalterium, 1513-1517. He commented on seven penitential psalms in 1517. He returned to a second set of lectures on the first 22 psalms from 1518 to 1521 in a work, uh, Operations in the Psalms, 1518 and 1521. In 1521, Luther wrote a commentary on Psalm 68 while at Warburg. That was the tower where, remember, he was sequestered to do his translation under the protection of, of Prince Philip. 1520, because he had a, he had a, a vendetta on his life. 1525, he preached from Psalm 26 and 112. 1526, he wrote a commentary entitled, titled Four Psalms of Comfort. This was dedicated to the uh, to Queen Mary of Hungary, who was very supportive of the Reformation. Of course, we know that one of Luther's huge accomplishments was his translation of the Bible into German. So if any of you kids take a German class in your education upcoming, or you have taken a German class, you know, it's a good German class, that the teacher should be responsible to say that Luther's translation uh, of the Bible into German transformed the German language even up to the modern day, given his style. Uh, back to the 1520s, after his translation of the Bible into German, he endeavored to write a new revision of the Psalter. He undertook this project in his own words, quote, so that David might sound purely German. Close <laughs> Not sure what to make of that. Especially in this context, you know, our age. But anyway, 1532, he wrote, the summaries of the Psalms, which were to accompany his new revision of the Psalter. And he returned again to the Book of Psalms in the 1530s in an effort that brought forth several commentaries and sermons on individual Psalms. He commented on Psalm 8, Psalm 111, 117, 118, and 1530. 1534, he commented on 101. He had lectures on Psalms 2, 51, 45, and the spring and summer of 1532, and Psalm 90 and 1534 and 1535, and on Psalm 23 and 1535, and he preached on Psalms 8 and 10 and 1535. Obviously, Luther loved the Psalter, and it had a huge impact on his formative years. So much so that Henrik Vorken would say, the majority of Luther's career as a lecturer was devoted to the Old Testament, and the majority of the sermon text came from the book of Psalms and Genesis. For Luther believed that among the Old Testament books, these most clearly witnessed the gospel. Most notable. We know a decisive breakthrough happened in Luther's mind between 1515 in 1516. He underwent a radical alteration in his view of justification. Um, there's debate over exactly what date, but we're not going to enter that. It's really a minor debate and only a few years here or there. But it's, it's before 1517 that Luther goes through this paradigm shift. And what is known is that late in his life, just before his death, Luther wrote autobiographically about his exegetical breakthrough in understanding the righteousness that comes from God. So I'm going to read to you uh, the Gates of Paradise passage that he wrote. It's rather long, but it's clear and very direct and blunt, like we heard Luther was even earlier. And this is crucial. Some of it will sound very familiar to those of you who know something about the Reformation, and it's 
agonizing before his priests and confessing all his sins, right? Because he had no clearness and subtleness of consciousness. So this is where they get that. Let me read before you. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor, love, kids, love, for understanding Paul and the epistle to the Romans. But up until then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in Romans 1.17. In the righteousness of God, in, in the righteousness of God is revealed, etc., etc., which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught, to understand philosophically is regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. And though I lived as a monk without reproach, so this is written right near the end of his life, I felt I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love Yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And I said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost for original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law and the death law without having God add pain, uh, to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately, in other words, repeatedly, upon Paul at that place, Romans 1, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted. At least by the mercy of God, meditating on it day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in the righteousness of God, it is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous shall live by a gift of God, namely by faith. This is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness shall live. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred in which I before hated the righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truly a gate to paradise. Also, what was it that led to this breakthrough? Why the profound and radical attitude change as he's looking back roughly 30 years later upon his early life and said, here I was converted and entered the gates of paradise. I had to cut J.D. Mitchell out of his tongue a couple of men yesterday. Something had to go, you know. <laughs> In my beloved region. He is answering his mention and said the most important question in the world of man, woman, or child can ask. How can I be right before God? Mention goes on and says, Oh, there's plenty of people that say, What do other men say about me? But those are not the men that change history. The most important question a human being can ask is, How can I stand righteous 
before an almighty God. That's what Luther's asking. At this point, I must stop and explain a very brief Latin phrase. So I brought a marker up here, and I thought I'd use this as my whiteboard. <laughs> and I know I'd never be invited back. And uh, so I'm not going to write it up here. But if you just listen, it's very short. I think you can get it, and I'll explain the essence of it. But it's crucial. It's crucial to the argument. Um, the Latin phrase is, quote, in say, est. Um, or with one bracketed word, fakere, fakere, quote, in say, est. To do what is in oneself. That's what it means. And this phrase is everywhere in the air. <laughs> To do what is in one, to be able to do what is in one. Quote in say yes. There was a nominalist, I mentioned nominalist Murray, named Gabriel Biel, B-I-E-L. And he popularizes everywhere. So every theologian of the day is under this medieval dark cloud that the way that to be righteous before God was to do what is in one. And then that allegedly puts God in the dock, and so to speak, obligates God to reward, even if it's just humility, even if it's just a faint little bit of faith. But when we exercise that in and of ourselves, we're here at this time, I'm trying to help you build a bridge, you know, imaginatively, to, 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 to think like Luther would have thought before 1517. It's like, well, I have to do what's in me. Even if that's a little bit of humility, even if it's a still small seed of faith. And that's what God will then be obligated to reward. We mentioned a word earlier, merit. That's the essence of merit. So what broke through, you know, Luther's mind? See, Luther had helped to the notion that God in his equity rewarded man who had done, quote, in say, asked what was in one with justifying faith, so that the divine judgment is based solely upon a recognition of an individual possessing a quality that had to be rewarded because God was put under obligation. It's not my view. <laughs> Explaining, and I think based upon your looks, that you now have been transported back to 1515 and yet the world view. And then more importantly, what role did the Psalms play in this? Well, if you open your Bible and you look at Psalm 71.2, this is a crucial passage. I'll read 71.1 and then you look at 71.2. It's my own translation, but it's probably very close to whatever form you have. It's a pretty good and straight translation. Uh, this is a lament to God, and on Psalm 71, 1 says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Do not let me be put to shame forever. A lament. Now look at verse 2. In your righteousness, you rescue me, and you save me. Incline your ear to me, and deliver me. Now based upon what I just told you was the predominant worldview and understanding of merit and the righteousness of that God at that time, and maybe it was to punish or reward if a person 
has within themselves, apart from the grace of God, some form of faith, humility, and faith, and God's under obligation to reward that. But if you read it against that back set, this is what troubled Luther, because now he knows Hebrew. In your righteousness, so he's reading in Hebrew, he's not just reading in Latin anymore, you know, um, you rescue me and you save me. Incline your ear to me and deliver me. Now, there's a difficulty there. If you're under that dark cloud of medieval understanding, to understand that phrase in your righteousness. It doesn't cohere. So Luther's now thrown into all kinds of questioning. What does it mean, the righteousness of God? If you pause and think about Luther's worldview and mindset at this time, you can see how radical his paradigm shift was. These early theologians of the church were dependent upon their Latin Bibles and the versions of the Bible. They approached their texts and their subjects with a set of presuppositions that owed more to the Latin language than it did to Hebrew's Greek in its original. And so the shift came when they were exposed to God's scripture and revelation, both in the Hebrew and Greek texts, and this becomes decisive in importance for shaping the Western discussion of justification, not only in the Reformation, but for centuries. See, when Luther first started working through the Psalms, he assumed Beale's understanding of Iustitia Dei, Iustitia meaning based upon divine equity which looks solely to a man's merits in determining his reward within a framework established by the covenant that obligates God, be it small seed of faith or humility. But then between 1514 and 1519, Luther's view undergoes this radical, seismic alteration. And it was in the years of 1514, 1515, that that shift happened. You see, his early concept of the righteousness of God was that righteousness of an utterly scrupulous, impartial judge who rewarded and many punishment on the basis of some unknown quality. But when you look at an analysis of Luther's lectures in 1513 to 1515 on the Psalter, the Dictata work, and on Romans in 15, 15 and 16. So two years he's studying intensely the Psalms. He's lecturing on them. Then he turns to Romans. And then he turns to Paul's other great work, Galatians 15, 16, 15, 17. And boom! His mind explodes. And his theology of justification undergoes a significant alteration. Probably in 15, 14, 15, 15. Now, some have argued that it was due to his working on Psalm 70 to 71. Um, to be very precise here, um, maybe close to the truth that he'd say he was clarifying terminology between the Hebrew and the Greek and the Latin at this point, such that now within his existing theological framework, see, I, as a Hebrew professor, i got to be careful I don't sound too tangentious and say, you know, Hebrew changed the Western, you know, civilization. It's hard to admit this, but probably what happened was there was one chink in the chain where now he clarifies the terminology. 
and he recognizes that the various istutitiae, that is, righteousnesses, that man must possess if he's justified, are the following. Righteousness by faith, that we heard earlier, eustitia fide, the righteousness by which God is obliged to reward this righteousness with grace, but still a little bit on the Roman Catholic side, eustitia dei, and implicated in the process of justification, if now clarified. But then the break comes, studying Romans. Together with Hebrew and the Psalms, I think probably both, and they collided. And then three alterations happen. So it's not just the Hebrew, not just Psalm 71, even though I'd like to find that, I can, the conscience. Um, it's not just the Hebrew of Psalm 71, apart from Romans and Greek. It's most precisely the opening up of his mind by Psalm 71 too. What does the righteousness of God mean that I hate? But now I feel myself growing more unfortunately attached to it. Now he realizes it's an alien righteousness. That doesn't mean it comes from ours, right? It's a righteousness that's outside of him. He would talk about how we're billy button gazers. We all are turned inward to only look at ourselves. But now suddenly he goes, oh, it's not my righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from God himself that's given to me. So when I was in youth work, I used to take my jacket and wrap it around the youth person to explain the act of obedience of Christ and the invitation of the act of obedience of Christ. It's like me taking my jacket and then it warmed the top of my heart. Years ago, uh, they would go out and hear a speaker speaking about imputation, the alien righteousness of Christ imputed to them. Oh, Mr. Estelle wrapping his jacket around it. Now I remember. It's like a dumb illustration, but it worked. And um, would be ministers, already ministers, how many imputations are there in the Bible? That's right, three. She did not get it because she's a sister in the back row, but nevertheless, she got it. She has a wife and elders, that's good. Uh, Adam and Eve impute their sin to us, Adam in particular is the federal head. We impute our wicked sins uh, to Christ, he becomes a curse on our behalf, suffers the <coughs> sanctions, the curse sanctions of the covenant, not for his own sin, because he was glorious harmatia without sin, uh, but nevertheless takes it upon himself to suffer uh, the curse on our behalf, and then through his perfect righteousness without sin, he imputes his righteousness to us. So that when God looks upon you, if you're truly an elect person in Christ, he sees Christ's righteousness as he looks upon you. And in several decades of ministry now, you get your mind wrapped around that, because I've seen it. I've seen it in people's eyes. They suddenly understand the act of obedience of Christ. Especially on school moms. <laughs> and they go, oh my goodness. It's like Christ looks, you know, God looks upon me and Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. And it's like the bells go off and the lights go off and, and they see it. And I'm liberated from the devil and all his epiphanies and my own dark sins. 
So this is what Luther saw. Now he insists that man is passive in his justification. In the dictata, this early 13, 13, 13, 15 work, um, sorry, 15, 13, 13, 15, 15 work, he would concede that man was still active in the process of justification, to be perfectly honest. But now, Luther unequivocally states that God is the one who turns man towards him. He sees him. And secondly, he now insists that man's will is held captive by grace and is incapable of attaining righteousness unaided by divine grace. And third, and probably most important, Luther states that the idea that man can do, quote, and say, ask, <laughs> what is in him? It's Pelagian. Through and through. Who is Pelagius? Why is that so important? Well, I first learned the essence of Pelagianism when reading Machen. Machen's so good placer, even though I had to cut some. And I was referred to Machen when I was an undergraduate at U and he kept referring to Warfield's work. So I go to Warfield's work. Warfield was an extremely productive scholar, in part because he had a very sick wife, and so he couldn't be the active churchman that he was called for. And I thought he was extremely productive and true. And there's an article called Augustine and Plagian Controversy. So I'll read you just a couple short quotes because nature was right. He got the essence of Plagianism. Listen to this. It's not about free will. You know, we as Calvinists believe in free will. We just want to define it properly. Um, Rather, it was about the fact that Pelagius denied the ruin of the human race. This is what Warfield says. The struggle with Pelagianism was thus in reality a struggle for the very foundations of Christianity, even more dangerously than in the previous theological and Christological controversies. Here, the practical substance of Christianity was in jeopardy. The real question at issue was whether there was any need for Christianity at all whether by his own power man might not attain eternal felicity, that is, communion with God, or whether the function of Christianity was to save or only to render an eternity of happiness more easily attainable by man. Warfield lays his finger on the very rub of the issue when he continues, we have touched on the central informative principle of Pelagianism, it lies in the assumption of the plenary, that is, across the board, ability of man. His ability to do all the righteousness can demand. To work out not only his own salvation, but also his own perfection. This is the core of his whole theory. And all the other postulates not only depend upon it, but arise out of it, both chronologically and logically. This is the root of his system. Pelagius' view is, whether we will or whether we will not, we have the capacity of not sinning, apart from grace. That was his view. And Augustine was the giant who confronted him. Nothing sweeter than cutting off Goliath's head with his own sleeve. And that's what Augustine did. He hamstrung him. And Augustine's prayer which was given to Pelagius, 
went like this. Give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. Give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. You hear the human dependency on grace there? Pelagius hated that. When it was read to him, he'd go into temper tantrum and hated it so much. <laughs> well, this is a little bit of the story by way of conclusion, but a very important part of the story that led to Luther's radical breakthrough. And this led to the three main points of the development or advancement of the doctrine of justification between 1530 and 1570, which I'll summarize now. Although there's hardly a better place uh, and I give this to you, especially for your family devotions around the season, chapter 11 of the Beloved Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the answer. But justification is now defined as a forensic declaration that the believer is righteous. And rather than a process by which he is made righteous, it involves a change in status by which he is made righteous. And now a deliberate and systematic distinction is made between justification, the external act of God by which God declares the sinner to be righteous, and sanctification or regeneration, the internal process of renewal after man is declared righteous. And then finally, justifying righteousness or the formal cause of justification is now defined as that alien righteousness of Christ external to man, imputed to him, rather than righteousness, which is inherent to him, located in him, or which may in any sense be said to belong to him. That was Luther's breakthrough. Now, um, I want you to turn to Psalm 71, and I'm going to point out in light of everything for now read Psalm 71 anew, a few verses, and then let's read Psalm 72 in closing again, and see how Luther could preach Christ so freely from Psalm 72 in light of the breakthrough. If you get anything out of tonight, I want you to get this. You can add nothing to your salvation. talking about Yosemite earlier. The same tide of rope between El Capitan and Hathnum. Or if you haven't made it there yet, shame on you if you haven't lived too close. Um, think of the Grand Canyon. Rim to rim. Rope to rope. I've been rock climbing for over 50 years. Let's say I said to you, I'm going to tie a slack line, big fat, one so that you can walk from one side of half dome over to the other side. Or from one side of the rim of the Grand Canyon to the other. And I'll put you on belay and I'll tie you in. I've been tying knots for years, both on the high seas of Alaska and Yosemite and other places. Now let's say I took that strong rope and I I spliced in a foot of twine. You can see where I'm going. <laughs> and on that half tone side, we tied back and anchored that in. Will you trust me to walk across that line from half tone to El Capitan, wouldn't you? Oh, come on. How about six inches? Splice in that boat. 
I want it. No, you'd be a fool to trust me to do that, wouldn't you? It's a very kind of silly illustration, but I want you to get one thing tonight that so too you can add nothing to your salvation. Because it's all of God and all of His grace and all of His work. So look at verse 2. In your righteousness, with Psalm 71, you rescue me, you save me, you incline your ear to me and deliver me. Now let your eye go down and look at, oh, I think it's um, verse 17. If my enumeration didn't get messed up, it might be one forward or backwards, you can figure it out. My mouth, says the psalmist now, will recount your righteousness, O God, every day, your salvation. Though I do not know numbers, that's a literal translation. I do not know the scribal art, something like that. And then verse 18, I will come with the mighty deeds, or on account of the mighty deeds of yours. O Lord my God, I will remember your righteousness alone. 21, your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. Who has done great things, O God? Who is like you? There's the incomparability formula. 26, even my tongue every day shall meditate on your righteousness, O God. For they shall be put to shame, they shall be disgraced, those who seek my hurt. And now as it turns to Psalm 72, uh, he was a little wonky in his interpretation of certain parts of Psalm 72. Uh, so for example, and I, working in a medieval paradigm, he thought the moon and the stars that are alluded to were meant to prove the two natures of Christ. Well, that's just a little longer. Right? <coughs> a little longer. It's allegorical. And Calvin says, no. But that's what he's worried about. There's a lot of wonky things they did back then. But suddenly, he's free and liberated to preach Christ in all his righteousness without hesitation. And so he understood um, that Psalm 72 was indeed messianic. It's too bad Lutheran scholars at the highest level uh, don't understand this psalm to be messianic today. That's what's great earlier is. It's been lost again. We can't cover it. But now, given what we talked about with the righteousness of God, listen to Psalm 72 afresh. Give the king your justice, O God, your righteousness to the royal city. May he judge your people with righteousness and pour with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of need. Crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he bite you like the rain that falls on the moon grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river that's in Euphrates to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands win the tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Zeba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor, and him who has no helper, 
He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence and deeds their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, Christ. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings and both for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land at the tops of the mountains. May it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. And may many people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. When you sing that song, you are singing of the covenant of grace and all its fruition with Christ bringing in all the elect from the ends of the earth without regard for ethnicity or color of skin or its geographical location. Uh, but rather, this is the new Jerusalem. Let's give praise to God and thanks to Him before we close out the service. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we give you great praise and thanks. We thank you that you are the God of history, and Lord, that nothing escapes your notice. And that indeed, although we could look at market fluctuations, we could look at the rise and fall of rulers and tyrants and wars and peace, and Father, we know ultimately that there is a kingdom that presses in upon this world to move it to its destined end. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it until you bring all your people in to sing your praise forever and ever. We thank you for Christ Jesus, our penalty-paying substitution, our Lord fulfilling uh, all that was necessary uh, to pay a blood price. We thank you for our probation keeper, fulfilling all that was necessary that the first Adam failed to fulfill and the true son of Israel never fulfilled but Christ, nevertheless, came in, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem a people who are under the law uh, from their sins and make them adopted sons and daughters of God. We give you great praise for these thanks, and for these thanks, for these truths of which we've been reminded this evening. Help us to glory in them. Uh, help us to be re-energized and re-incentivized, to put our hands to the plow, even in areas like this in the North Bay uh, that are very rocky soil. Uh, Father, uh, would you turn up the soil and make us faithful harvesters as we seek to bring in all your people and build up your saints that you do bring to your churches as represented here. Do this, O Lord, and we will praise you. Do this, O Lord, and we will be very careful to make sure the glory redounds to your son Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.